Sup? Yo, feels like we just did this. This is recording number three. <laughs> but it's only it's only two and a half minutes of work, so it's not bad. Uh, hopefully we've rallied and are ready to go. What's up? Yeah. Oh, not much. Just wrapping up some stuff before the end of uh, this week, and I don't know that I'll get any work done next week, so... Looking forward to the holidays. How about you guys? Same. I'm trying to take tomorrow off. We'll see if I'm able to do that. But I don't know. I've, relo- I've launched a couple of bigger features around messaging again. So a lot. Ooh, what's that? Uh, visitor messaging. So before we had it limited to only your students could message you. Now anyone can. Cool. Now you can spam everyone. It was a cool feature to add. Um, we designed it to where it wasn't too much work to add. And like since we launched Messaging at Christmas, we were able to release it. So I'm pretty happy with it. Yeah, that's cool. And you guys are doing like, uh, well, the guest messaging is like um, kept track of as like, a, is it just a user's browser cookies? Or do you just, you know, as long as the connection's open, that's a customer or whatever, an unauthenticated conversation. Yeah, it's a cookie, and it actually yeah. maps to like a visitor record. So, oh, nice. Yeah, because um, you can also do like email notifications. So, like if a creator is away, we prompt and be like, "Hey, do you want to just get an email when they message you back?" Mm, okay, cool. Yeah, dude, that's a great feature to have, especially when you look at intercom and the other alternatives and how expensive they are. It's great to have that as a basically included for feature for free, especially, which is funny because like you go to intercom and it's like, well, you can get this feature for 30 bucks a month and this other one for 50 bucks a month. And you're like, you're paying ad hoc per feature seems kind of strange, but yeah, it must work. The other thing uh, Spencer, the CEO did that was really cool is he made it free to like all our plans. That's awesome. Yeah, it was really cool um, because like the work I did impacted everyone. So literally everyone, all the peoples. But yeah, no, I'm off next week and a little bit of the week after. So I'm excited to rest. I'm just trying to decide if I want to. I've pushed pretty this hard. Is like December. Was this like an extreme version of deploying on Friday? You're like <laughs> deploy day before vacation. Uh, I deployed. So I've had it like feature flag for a while and then deployed and turned off the feature flag yesterday. Um, I had somebody helping me. My coworker Basil was doing a lot of work, which helped me be able to deliver this, helped us be able to deliver it. Uh, Andrew, how are, how are you doing? How's things in the holidays? Uh, I'm doing great and I am getting ready for the break too. I think I'll be off for like two weeks. Um, and I'm excited because there are a couple things that I want to do at for Code Fund that aren't really things I need to be spending my time right now doing. But there's a ton of stuff, mostly cleanup, um, that I want to do over a few days for this break. Because we just uh, launched a new skin for the app. And today I went in and deleted all the old theme vendor all the uh, views and things like that. And 
there are a lot of dependencies that we still have laying around that aren't used. And there's a lot of helper methods that I've been sticking, uh, was it active support deprecations in, and I'm going to clean house and I am so excited. It's always a very good feeling to go through and do that sort of stuff. I enjoy it. It's like when you're cleaning your, your room, finally, it feels good afterwards. Yeah. And I'm not interested in cleaning my room. So this is, this is the next, next best thing. Dude, we can make a business like code maids. We just go in and clean stuff up for you. I dig it. I would pay. I would pay a lot. (laughs) Yeah. Something about refactoring code is like one of my favorite things. Um, We recently had fun doing that with you were, uh, you asked for a code review in um, the GoRail Slack channel, and I was like, oh, this sounds like fun. Um, so thanks for that. But it was a good, you know, half hour or something just sitting down, like refactoring some code I've never seen before, which, you know, part of that is like, it's good because if you've never seen it before, you don't know the intentions and stuff. And so then it really forces you to like think about it and figure out what is this like, you know, what's this conditional or this block trying to do and can we give it a name? And once you start to understand its intent, then you like have a very clear name for it. Whereas like if you're the first person hacking through it, trying to make it work in the first place, it's, it's harder to put names on things that way. Cause like you're kind of familiar with the um, steps you had to work through, you know, trying to figure out how, how do we even need to approach this? in the first place and then you forget about like it feels like all one big blob so i had a lot of fun doing that and it made me want to go back through a bunch of my old code too and hatchbox and go rails and stuff and clean some other things up but uh yeah yeah that was a number one super helpful um i really appreciate you doing that that code base was originally forked from another action that wasn't working and I wanted to add a whole bunch of capabilities to it. And that action was just one giant Ruby file. Uh, Mm -hmm. So that's where like that pattern of like that file I sent you was like a big, a big file with no classes um, kind of just linearly going through and doing things. And I had started to refactor um, because I'd started to pull in other, or basically factoring things out into classes and stuff, but hadn't got hadn't quite gotten there with that specific file. And then, as like I went from that original fork, and then people added onto it, and then you know different styles started getting introduced to it. And then I just kind of I went I was doing like a big change anyway. And when I got to that file, I was like, I just don't like my brain is so spent on this project and I can't remember the last time I wrote like straight Ruby without using rails. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I think that was a big part of like what was stopping me. That's a funny thing too. Cause you always see these like posts on Reddit and other places that are like, where do I put my form objects and you know, my domain objects and service objects. And it's like, you guys remember like rails is just a Ruby, you know, a Ruby app. Like there happens to be some code in, in 
their gem and a bunch of other gems and you have a folder structure they give you, but that's not, it's not a requirement. And I feel like people are really not either not aware of that or they don't write much regular Ruby apps themselves where they're forced to make a directory structure and, you know, extract classes and things out. Um, so yeah, I thought that was fun because um, it feels like, you know, when you're writing just a Ruby app directly at first, you're like, oh, it's like writing a bash script or something where everything runs from the top to the bottom. And when it hits the bottom, you're done. But like when we were, when I was going through refactoring your code there, um, I was like, yeah, this reminds me of writing a bash script. But if we go through and, you know, slowly pull these things out, um, for example, we're accessing a lot of the GitHub provided environment variables. Let's just make a module or a class or something as a wrapper around that and then just toss that somewhere else, like in a different file in a class. And then that gets us like an easy way to access that and set up default values or whatever else. And then all of a sudden, you know, like starting to pull this into what feels like more of an actual application. And then you can go test that kind of stuff too, uh, a little bit easier because you can instantiate the object and check the environment variables. Whereas how are you going to test uh, the script running from start to finish? You know, it's not a modular thing. So that makes that much tougher. So um, yeah, that was really fun to do. And if anybody wants to watch my recording of doing that, it's up on GoRails is the latest episode on the Rubocop linter refactoring. So yeah, I had a, I had a blast doing that. Um, have you guys ever done a lot of refactoring in bigger apps? To the point where like I've gotten in trouble for doing too much refactoring. <laughs> um, what, what qualifies then as, as too much refactoring? Um, it breaks. Well, <laughs> for me, it was like, I had a hard time separating, like building a feature and refactoring. So like, I had to open up a PR and it's like, wait, what does this have to do with the feature kind of thing? Um, uh, okay. So you like, you're given a feature to add and then you're like, let me clean this up before I start or something or like as I'm doing it. Yeah. As I'm doing it. And like, I kind of took it too far. Um, but pretty much that pretty much all I ever want to do is like refactor, which is a problem, I guess. Uh, and I try to like break that habit at work. Um, but I think that, uh, like extends out of my obsessive compulsive disorder. Um, to where like I like view the world a certain way and I want the code to match that view. And like, I have trouble focusing when it's not. So. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, uh, you know, the new feature pays the bills, but refactoring doesn't yet. You still need to do some refactoring or, uh, you know, hopefully plenty of refactoring just to make future improvements faster. But then there's also a weird trade off of like, how do you know if you're actually going to improve the code in the future by refactoring like some things aren't as clear you might be able to reorganize stuff but it might i don't know it might be a good refactoring given the current state of the world but like you know your boss could give you some other um requirement that forces all that to be like undone which would be bad it's an interesting thing to balance one of our, I guess like one of my favorite refactors happened earlier this year. And it was a thing where like we built a feature 
know, we built a lot of similar, similarly related features. And then it was like, well, these features aren't going anywhere. And we kind of have like, we know how we're going to expand upon it in the future. Uh, it was a lot to do with like how we integrate with other people from Podia. And so like we wrote an abstraction for it and like, we've already added a few more integrations with it. Like it feels good. And it was like, this was a good refactor, but they hardly ever go that way. So. Yeah. I've noticed that. Or like you have to have a very clear idea of what you're going to do in the future in order to do a, like really good refactoring. Cause, um, you can definitely work yourself into a corner on accident and then you're like, wow, we did this work refactoring and now we got to undo it. Yay. So I'm just going to light this conversation on fire. Uh, you mentioned earlier, like service object stuff, like we've talked about that before. And I've been thinking a lot recently because I recently watched one of those on writing software well videos DHH made. Yeah, yeah. And I just struggled to want to put everything into concerns. Well, I watched those, a couple of them. I forget was that he did one on authentication, maybe. Um, one of them I watched and I was like, there's a whole heck of a lot of indirection going on here. Like, I, it was hard to keep track of what he was looking at and how it all fit together. And I, like... I don't know. It was interesting. Like some of the concern stuff I find useful just to organize things. Like if you have a lot of um, maybe helper methods in your application controller, being able to extract those into a concern that's like, here's ones for current user or current team or current whatever. If you have those kind of helper methods, like make a current helper concern and then you can just put them all in one place. But percent. But there's a point, you know, where that goes overboard. And like, I felt that way reading through action text source code, because I would see like the same methods defined in three or four different places and then not know how any of the code flowed together. And it was not clear most of the time where, you know, the entry point and the path it was going to go through was. And that was like really hard to figure out. And it, it felt like it was too complicated or something. And I'm I'm curious why the design is the way it is, but yeah, it felt like it felt kind of like that. Like there was a lot of modules and it didn't seem like they were all necessary or, you know, or they could have been named differently or something to make it a little bit more clear how it worked together. I'm not sure. So at my last job, because I learned Ruby, by learning Rails, and I did it at my last job. And they were heavy, heavy users of service objects, but it was like the interactor pattern where you have basically a service object, but like the entry point into all of them is like a perform method. And so that was all I knew. And I didn't like the interactor pattern, but I really liked the idea of having like these basically poros everywhere that could do the basically services for you. And when I went to CodeFund, it was a massive shift because Nate largely writes software like DHH. He like really drinks like the DHH Kool-Aid and there are no service objects and it's concerns. 
And so far, like at first I was pretty put off by it, but that was because I, we didn't even really use concerns at my last job, or at least I had never used a concern before. And like I said, it was a little off-putting at first, but once I figured out how they were doing it and kind of got the flow, like it, it's architected pretty well to the point that there's not really any of that duplication like you're talking about, Chris. But there are times where I'm like, okay, now there's something that I want these two things to know about. And that's when I start wanting to reach for a, some sort of service object outside of concern. But then I usually call Nate and he has a better way to do it, which keeps it in the concern and doesn't have a ton of duplicate code. See, like, I don't think it's necessarily like the wrong approach. I just have trouble. Like I've never programmed that style. Um, like I like modules all day. Um, and I like concerns and I like, like the API around like modules it gives, but like, I just, I feel weird, like opening a model and everything being like concerned out. I am a big fan of the interactor pattern. We use that a lot. My last job, like being able to write these like tiny interactors. So like using the interactor gym, like these tiny little things that are like responsible for one or two things. And then like organizing them into one bigger interactor is really cool because the other thing that's nice about that is like you can pull these interactors like in a rails console and just fire them off. Like if you need some logic performed and that's really nice. And yeah, I don't know. You guys reminded me of, have you heard of the gilded rose kata? I've heard of it, but I don't remember what it is. I have not. It's like, um, it's a little programming challenge. Um, and you have like these little, I guess you have like products and they have like a quality and stuff and they have uh, different price things and, and so on. And you have different rules for them. And the challenge is like, how do you write code to cleanly organize all these like different requirements? So for example, like, um, once you have these things like sell by dates and quality. So like some things degrade twice as fast after the sell by date has passed and the quality of an item is ne never negative. Um, aged brie actually increases in quality the older it gets and the quality of an item is never more than 50. You have these various different rules that are like, you know, kind of challenging to implement and I had gone and done this before just to see how I would organize it. And, you know, you, you look into doing um, inheritance and classes that define these methods and so on and, and whatever. And they give you kind of like a pretty nasty little uh, loop kind of thing with no classes originally. And like classes seem like a great way to refactor. And then, um, uh, Jeg, the what's his name? Um, James Edward Gray the second has a refactoring of it where he actually creates modules for each of these things, like module better with age. And that one just implements the related stuff to updating the quality where it gets better instead of worse. And then he can go and mix in these modules into the instances based upon what they are. So if it's like, you know, aged brie, then you include that module and that module only contains 
you know, that code for improving things over with age. And then you can apply, apply these things individually to your different classes and have the same interface. And it seems probably similar to um, how they're doing some of the things at Basecamp, judging by, you know, what I've seen so far. I haven't like seen their code base or anything aside from the couple screencasts that I've watched. But it reminded me of that because it was like a way to mix and match these things, assuming you have an interface to find somewhere. And it may just be that like I wasn't super clear watching some of the stuff about the interface, but um, I really do like that idea of using modules of like interchangeable parts, basically, where you can say, hey, why don't we go replace this with that one? Um, I thought that was a pretty cool thing. I'll have to share a link and we'll put that in the notes so you guys can check that out. There was a odd V article I read is like enough with the service objects already. I think I've talked about it before and he talks about using like mixing in code for this kind of stuff that there, I think he calls it like, these are just procedures that run and like that really helped kind of guide me there. But I don't know. I'm just lost. I'm lost in the land of programming. Yeah. I should probably clarify (laughs) the reason I didn't like the interactor pattern is a, we weren't using the interactor gem. They rolled their own and it didn't exist as a gem. It was literally just copy and pasted to each project. So there's smell number one. Smell number two was they used service objects. So, or they use these interactors so much for literally everything. And they use them for things that it didn't make sense to use them for. Like basic calling perform is like a nice, you know, pattern to have when the object you're calling is performing something, but they would just shove it into places that it just, it didn't make sense to me at the time. And it still doesn't. Um, I see why they did it now because that was just a pattern that, you know, they use and they just, you know, they just beat it to death almost. But I don't know, Jason, from what you're saying, I think you and I would work really, really well together because I have incredible ADHD and I am not interested in refactoring for the most part or anything else like that. And in the time I used to work with a guy who was very, very OCD and we worked great together because I would come in and make a huge sloppy mess, but it would all work and I could pound it out really quickly. And then he would kind of come behind and refactor it into like the way, like a maintainable way. That's cool. Yeah. I don't know. I'm, I need to explore that more. Maybe I'll do that on my holiday break. Uh, or maybe I'll just give in to the functional overlords and just write Elixir my entire break. And then I don't have to worry about anything ever again. Yeah, everything's just better. I heard. <laughs> I've heard that. If you're like interested magic. in seeing um, Jason, CodeFund's open source. So we have all the, we have a Git repo with all the code and everything is using concerns. So that's, that's actually exactly what I want and exactly what I need is to just see a code base like that. Cause I haven't seen one before. And I think that might be what's so jarring when I watch those videos is like, wait a second, what's happening. Yeah. I'll put a link in the show notes, but it, it is jarring at first, but I think part of the thing that makes it work so well 
is by not having like not having objects that have the same use basically. So like if you have two different objects and they both basically need to do the same type of thing, that's kind of a smell where like you really need one object to have that and there shouldn't be two. And I think if you can easily use concerns, I think that's an indication that you have very, very clean, semantic, well-architected code. Although there are definitely things in the code base where I'm like, okay, this doesn't make sense to have in a concern. It's not really a concern. It would make sense to have this in a service object, but we just haven't had enough of them for me to really push to create some sort of service object pattern. So let's shift gears and talk about what we're actually going to talk about today. Sorry about that. Um, in six days, we will be Ruby 2.7-ing. Uh, so Yay! That's where you need sound effects. Do what? That's where you need the sound effects, man. Uh, I don't know if I have any good ones for that. I need like that. Yay, clapping gif. <laughs> um, so I have pulled up a Medium article because I am a professional and it is called What's New in Ruby 2.7. And I thought we'd just walk through, talk about those, uh, and then celebrate using them. Yeah, we'll ma- try and make it like some of the new features that get added to Ruby that I don't end up using because I'm just used to doing it the old way and try and embrace some of the new features. Um, there's something to be said about like not always adopting those new patterns. Like If you write code that only works in Ruby 2.7, then your gem can only work for libraries and stuff that use 2.7. So you don't always want to start using that right away, but you know, it's good to get into the habit of taking advantage of some of these new features at some point. Yeah. So first one we've talked about before pattern matching. Uh, so basically pattern matching on case statements uh, so like you can match on the structure of the data so like you can get inside arrays and I assume hashes, things like that. Uh, not much to yeah. say there, I think, except I think this would be beneficial. I am a little like jealous of like Elixir's pattern matching where you can do it on like methods and then mm-hmm. you can like remove conditionals and just define the same method a few times with different arguments. I think that's cool. Yeah, I think that's a for um, a code clarity perspective, it's probably a little bit easier to do it that way just because you have no conditionals, but you have to be aware of that. And then I wonder if there are times when, you know, for example, you include a module that happens to add another, you know, version of this method. And then all of a sudden it's calling that method and you didn't know it. Um, I wonder if there are times where you would run into issues with that or whatever. Maybe there, because I, I was curious why they didn't actually add method pattern matching. Um, maybe it's just too complicated. I don't know. But uh, this will be nice for case statements and stuff. You don't have to dig around first and then assign a variable and then check if it, you know, the items present or whatever, and that'll be easier to like go find what you're looking for right away in your case statement. 
Next one is numbered parameters. So you get these, I guess, essentially default parameters. So if do you, you know, going back real quick to case statements, do you know if you can mix and match the in? So now you have this in pattern um, keyword. Like, can you still use your uh, case when, like when it's this class or whatever? Can you mix and match those? The example here doesn't really show any of those. Uh, I don't know. To be honest, I would think you could. Because I think, yeah, I would think so. another type of checking. Yeah, I'm not sure. I just thought of that as I was looking at it. I was like, you know, that's interesting. Yeah. I have to look into that some more. Uh, so back to number parameters. So essentially instead of having to, I guess, define like a name when you get a block for each parameter, you can use underscore one, underscore two, underscore three, and so on. Um, which actually, I was kind of like, I'd heard about this one and looking at it kind of makes sense. Um, I don't really have a ton to say about it, but I think it's cool. I, when I saw this, I was initially kind of, put off with it like i i'm not really sure when I, okay for some things like they have an example here where uh they set underscore one equal to zero and then they have an array with just one item and the number one dot each uh block print underscore one like i get that kind of use case but i don't to me it would be way harder to read the code if you're not naming your inputs or your like block parameters, I guess. Yeah. Depends on the context, really. Um, yeah, I think the intention is like when you can't quite do a like a map with the ampersand symbol method call. Um, you know, when you're calling a method directly like that, this is like for those situations where you can't quite do that, but having a a full name for the object is like not really necessary because it's like pretty short still. So you know what you're looping over. I wouldn't, I wouldn't probably want to use this if you had several like items that you were accessing in the parameters. Like probably if you're doing more than just the first one or two, I wouldn't want to do this unless you had some really interesting metaprogramming a, you know, reason for it or something. I don't know, but it doesn't quite seem like a thing you would want to use too much. Like it's a sharp knife they've given you. You can easily cut yourself with it. Mm. I really like the examples in this because all the comments that he, uh, I assume. Yeah. All the comments in the code are like question marks. So it's like bad. And it, then the next example is good. And then they give an example of the new syntax. It's like also good question mark. And then the rest of the examples are like simpler, short, simpler, simple one lines that can't otherwise be written. It's like nobody, I guess, really understands this feature. I don't know. And a lot of this stuff too was in, heavily inspired by Perl and how it did things. And I believe you can access the uh, parameters in a similar way um, and it might just be them pulling some more features or whatever from Perl 
that might be useful. So um, that'd be a good one to go read through the like uh, the thread on the feature in the issue tracker for Ruby itself. I'd be curious to see the conversation about it. Yeah, that's a good point. The next one I had not heard of, argument forwarding. And it looks like you can just pass all the arguments from a method into the next method. Um, I assume that dot, dot, dot. So like in the argument list, it just says dot, dot, dot. And then the method call inside the other function is just dot, dot, dot. Uh, And it passes keywords, arguments, and block arguments. Yeah, it's kind of nice because it used to be that you would have to like collect all the arguments and the block and all that explicitly and then pass them over if you're doing that. So that seems useful. I don't do that very often, but if you were just writing a wrapper around another method, then yeah, totally seems good. Sometimes I used to write, I don't really do this anymore, but I'd write plain old Ruby objects and they would use like dot call. Um, but I'd like want to instantiate an instance of that class, but still be able to just do like dot call without having to do that. So like I'd write a class method dot call that would take arguments and then instantiate the class with those arguments. So this would have been a good thing to have then. Oh yeah. Yeah. I've done that too. Like being able to call. And I think I actually had an example of that in the refactoring thing where it was like, why don't we wrap this uh, Rubicop linter action in a class and have a dot run method and then it's like, well, our interface now is like linter action dot new dot run. So if we just add a class method called self dot run and insta- that one instantiates and calls run, then we get kind of the same thing. Just a nice little wrapper for that. Um, I could see that being pretty useful, especially when you're doing on like call, which typically takes arguments. That would be helpful or Maybe you're just adding a, maybe you're overriding a method or something and deprecating it. And so you want to wrap it, put a, um, your warning in there and then call super with all the same arguments. That'd be an easy way of doing that too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, next thing, beginless ranges. Uh, I know we have endless ranges. So this one says an experimental feature still with some concerns. Uh, no earlier conversation puns intended. Um, so the example they give is a date and a case statement. And it's like when beginless range up until one year ago put ancient. I don't, yeah. I, I want to think of how I'd use that. I just don't know. It seems a little strange that we don't just have. I, I don't know. It doesn't seem that unintuitive for me to just write negative infinity dot dot one year ago or, you know, the vice versa for infinite ranges. So, you know, I guess it's useful. It's a little shorter, but it doesn't totally seem like it seems like it, it will lead to easy mistakes in typos when you write two periods on accident and then you're like, Oh, I didn't mean to make a range. I just made a typo. Um, that just seems like it maybe should be more explicit. I'm not sure. I can understand the concerns there. But 
Um, next one, unless there's anything else to say about that, uh, flip-flop operator. So poll between Andrew and Chris, have either of you ever used that? Because it says flip-flop operator is back. Yeah, I tweeted about that uh, a week or two ago, and I was like, I've never seen this before, and this looks awful. Like, <laughs> and... As far as I know, it was someone on Twitter said that uh, a lot of legacy apps had used it and they like kept it because of that, I guess. I don't know. It seems like it has been removed and then now it's back. So I don't know what the conversation was there. I would avoid them. They don't. It's like relying on some internal state of the conditional range. Um, to keep track of when the first one is passed and the second one is has not, and it's like you read the code and it seems very unclear. And I would rather just have you know a greater than or less than check uh, for each of those parts of the range, and that seems easier to do for my own sanity. I feel like. Yeah, I had never heard of it until I saw Chris's tweet about it. So. It looks what dangerous. A tweet. Um, that is where you receive untold amount of drama, but occasionally something helpful comes over the wire. Or good oh, jokes. Nice. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, it says flip-flop operator. It comes from Pearl. Probably not going to use it. Uh, Chris, great job explaining it. Array intersection. Okay, so this is cool. Um yeah, I didn't know that they didn't already have this feature. <laughs> it's like a well, I guess I did know they they didn't have the method named intersection, but the ampersand I had seen before. Like, uh, what do they call that? It's the um, use the ampersand when you're doing. Um, oh, I can't remember the word for it now. Dang it! Like, you use it often when you're doing. Um, Oh, I can't remember. Union? Yeah. Um, let me look it up. While you do that, I will explain. So intersection will compare two arrays and give you the matching values. But it's like in one of the examples, the first array is 1, 1, 3, 5, and the next one is 3, 2, 1. So it only gives you like the first match, I guess. Um, I get, I wonder if there were two B's in the second array. Sorry, I skipped down. If there were like two ones in the first array, two ones in the second array, it would still only return one one or two ones. I don't know. It looks like it removes duplicates. That's what, that's what it looks like. So I don't know, but it's a cool feature to have nonetheless, especially so it's now a method. You can call array.intersection pass another array. Unary was the word I was looking for. Man, I haven't heard never, that word in a long time. I would never <laughs> guess that was the word. <laughs> you know, binary, binary, and unary. Uh, next one. So we got some enumerator, enumerable, enumerable methods coming up. So enumerable filter map. It says selected map are often used to transform an array uh, while filtering some items out completely. So filter map. Okay. Yeah, well, just, 
pair the two together to solve the problem faster. So it essentially does a select and a map. That's cool. Yeah. Pretty nice, I think. Um, Because then you just return... What? You just return nil if you want to remove it from the resulting array. And then you're also mapping it to what value it should be at the same time. So if you want to get rid of something, you just return nil. Seems easy enough. and kind of does the uh, compact internally, I guess. Does what it says. Yeah. Uh, how does this next one not already exist? Tally. So given an array that has like A, B, C, B, A, it'll go through and tally the counts of duplicate items. Um, I know there's like, you know, size and stuff, but you're looking for uh, a specific value or whatever, right? It says. So maybe that's the unique thing. This is cool. Yeah, uh, I can definitely see myself using this one. This is good. Yeah. Not this one. Yeah, that's like, you know, doing a group in your, in a group and count or sum in your database queries, giving you the same kind of thing in, in native Ruby, which is nice. I'm not going to pretend I even know what this next one does. Enumerator.produce will produce an infinite sequence where each next element, element, that's my southern drawl, uh, each next element is calculated by applying block to previous. So obviously, this is the Fibonacci method. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's got to be, right? That's Uh, one of their examples there, of course. So it's cool. Um, if you have something that you can, if you have some sort of array or whatever, if you're looping through weeks, you can say, you know, here's the last date, here's a week from that date, just keep going. And all you, if all you need to know is the previous one, that's pretty simple. So seems, seems handy. looks like they've gotten, uh, or got a example on using it for pagination, which is nice. That's cool. That's probably one I will never end up using, but <laughs> could be handy and I'll always forget about it. Seems it's, like one of those methods. It's like in the movie Zoolander where they ask Hansel if uh what he thinks about Sting. And he says, uh I respect Sting. Uh do I listen to his music? No, but the fact he's making it, I respect that. <laughs> Fair enough, yeah. Uh, just just going on record, I love Sting. He's performing on my birthday, and I'm like, we should drop everything and go. Next there one, uh, symbol start with and end with. So same thing as string, just to see if a symbol starts with something or ends with something. Kind of nice. Symbol, s- simple enough. I don't know that I've ever actually asked a symbol that, but that's interesting. Because symbols being you know, static or whatever, or a little bit, they're more predictable than strings. So that's kind of interesting. I guess that comes in handy somewhere, but you wouldn't know, I guess you, it would be a situation where you didn't know the symbol that you were receiving. Interesting. And then it ends with keyword argument spec changes. And the little bit I've read ahead makes me want to like sob inside. So, 
when a method call passes a hash as the last argument and there's no keywords, there's, there's a lot of conditionals here. Hash is the last argument passes no keywords. And when the called method accepts keywords, a warning is admitted. Wowzers. To continue treating as keywords, add a double splat operator to avoid the warning and ensure correct behavior in Ruby 3. Huh. So. Yeah, these examples are interesting. So you basically, if you call the method uh, and it has keyword operators, then if you gave it an object, it doesn't like destructure the object, I guess, in that first example. And that's why it gives you the warning. Not real sure. Yeah. So I'm not, at this point, I'm not even going to try and explain these over a podcast, but we'll link to this article in the show notes and you can learn all about Word argument. <laughs> this is this is a little disappointing or whatever like just for the simplicity of the keyword arguments and stuff now it's like pretty strange or i guess maybe it's been working strangely and this is cleaning it up um that's interesting though because it's like I'm sure that you're going to see a heck of a lot of warnings come up as you're using gems and what other whatever other code you've written in the past that, you know, did work just fine, but now it's going to be a little strange. I'm sure that I'm like passing a hash in as keyword arguments many times and that probably doesn't work or whatever. But yeah, that's going to be interesting. Well... That's that concludes that uh, happiest of holidays to both of you and anyone listening. Yeah, you too. Take some time off. Don't uh, don't do too much elixir. Uh, when I'm no longer a host on the show because I've started remote elixir, then you'll know I've gone too far. Yeah, and then I'll I'll be coming by with Go Elixir. <laughs> Go. For- <laughs> and I will still be here because I'm not interested in that. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I'll be moving over either. Um, I'm so interested. I just always end up like, I just always end up like, oh, I can just do this in Ruby. Yeah, I don't know. That, and that brings up, if anyone hasn't read it yet, the article that uh, DHH posted about Basecamp's spend budget uh, to afford their Ruby code and stuff, how it's basically just a tiny fraction compared to salaries and stuff. And for the performance benefit that they get for building new things quickly, it's a great, great spend for them. I'll have a link in that in the notes, but that's, you know, the common thing is, Oh boy, Elixir's faster. Better use that instead of Ruby. (laughs) So that's actually, uh, oddly enough, performance is the thing I care the least about from switching to Elixir. There you go. That's a good reason then, or, uh, you know, better than. I'm just really interested in like, I I have to explore for myself versus just like believing everyone because I'm really good at just drinking the Kool-Aid as the phrase was said earlier, but 
I've been always been really fascinating by the people who talk about it's like easier to maintain and come back to functional code because like you have to keep less things in your head. And I'm like, that's fascinating. And I want to explore that and see what that's like. So I have a quick note on that. So code fun was originally written in Elixir and Phoenix. And then Eric, who is the co-founder hired a developer and the developer basically wrote their own framework, like, instead of using Phoenix. And it got to this huge unmaintainable mess that no one could use except for this one developer. And then Nate came on and they trashed the that app and got rid of the dude who did it and rewrote it on Rails. And it's actually faster and more easy to maintain and more easy to hire. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think the functional thing is you you just need to understand the concept of what code might become more maintainable that way. It doesn't mean all code's going to be more maintainable. So if you can apply yeah. those practices in in Ruby, then you get the best of both worlds, or you know whatever. So yeah, it this is one of those things where it's like always a good idea to go see how. Laravel does things, see how Phoenix does things, you know, go play with all those things. And then just you're smarter uh, by having explored all those and learned these new approaches. So it will never hurt to like go learn that stuff. And it's only going to make you a better Rails developer if you know that and Rails and keep doing Rails or vice versa. It's always going to be good to know other options or approaches out there. So yeah. yeah, I should clarify. I don't think it's like a silver bullet. Uh, I just want to learn for myself. Like, clearly, people like it for a reason. And I just want to figure that out. Yep. Yeah, I think it's a good one. And there's like a lot of underlying stuff there that they have the ability to, like, you know, run or make a deployment with like no downtime and stuff in production and like hot reload stuff. Um, or whatever I forget the 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 name for that, but like there's a lot of cool stuff that um, Erlang has underneath just because it was built for telecom, so it's got a lot of influence from all that, which I think is really like beneficial in various different ways. So yeah, there's so much cool stuff to learn from the different approaches. It'll be great to spend some time on and understand it a bit better. And I've written about it before, but you mentioned like learning and coming back to Ruby. Uh, there's a lot of, there's like a subset of the community that's doing like functional Ruby and we've had them on the mm-hmm. show, uh, like Solnica. Uh, yeah. All the dry RB guys and stuff. Yeah. And like, it was supposed to be a lot of dry RB. I don't know what the status is on that, but uh, yeah. So like, it's cool. Uh, Tim Riley does a lot of that stuff. God, I love and miss Tim. We should just move to Australia. I would hang out with him. <laughs> You're going to have a Southern Australian accent then. <laughs> he can't, he spoke for Southeast Ruby and Shannon bought these Aussie bites at Costco. Uh, it's like been a big running joke. And I guess he found some wherever he was. and sent a picture to me. It made me sad. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, uh, anything else before we wrap up? 
and head uh, off to the holidays. I think this is our last episode of the year. Well, that's that's a, a momentous comment there. Yeah, we we. Oh, I'm muting myself. We did better this year uh, than we did last year in terms of publishing schedule. We we uh, ebbed and flowed a little bit, but pretty happy. We've had some pretty consistent people like you listening and it's been fun. We got to meet people, uh, even people at Southeast Ruby who like heard about us from this. So that's cool. Yeah. And thanks to all you guys for listening. It's been what keeps us going. And it's a lot of fun to uh, have conversations, you know, on a regular basis anyways, Jason, but being able to do it on the podcast and then, rope in a bunch of other listeners and stuff is really cool so now we have andrew and nate on the show regularly so it's expanding it's gonna be a good next year of podcasting and stuff i think i'm excited yeah and this show is how i knew jason was a person first off and then got to meet him at RailsConf, and then i had heard of chris but got to meet him at rails comp too. And I, I love, I've been, I've been listening to this podcast since it started and I love it. Um, it's like, I, I just love hearing you guys candidly talk about, you know, whatever is going on and I hope I can, you know, start adding something to that table. But yeah, I think this is a, it's a unique podcast in the Ruby um, ecosystem. And I, I think it's really, I think it's awesome. I love to, I, I still listen to them and even though I'm on them, but I think they're great and I love the kind of the flow and relationship that you guys have and I'm happy to have been brought into it. We're so, glad to have you. It's bananas that you've listened since the beginning. I was just going to say that, um, you know, we finally found out that Jason was a person, not a robot. It's been all this time he's fooled us. <laughs> That's, do you watch The Good Place? No. Uh there's so like there's a it's hard to explain but essentially like in this afterlife there is it's like a computer almost uh and oh what's her name oh my gosh i'm blanking uh janet and like there's a lot of different janets but one of the guys like always is like oh thanks girl and she's like not a girl (laughs) uh because robot Ha, 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 ha. All right, gotta go. Bye. All right. We'll see you guys later. See you guys next year.